0: Thank you for listening to Oppenheimer's Let's Talk Future podcast series. In this episode, our guest is Martin Yang, Senior Analyst for Emerging Technologies and Services at Oppenheimer, and our host is Joan Corey, Managing Director and Chief Marketing Officer of Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on June 15, 2021. Please subscribe to our channel to instantly access previous episodes. Subscribing also means that you won't miss out on new episodes with our thought leaders We're bringing you timely and relevant insights about the markets, investing, business, new technology, and life in general.
1: The gaming market continues to evolve with amazing innovation and exponential growth. And while continuing to be a very popular hobby, it is becoming like baseball and tennis, a sport of choice. Exactly what is a video game? And why is gaming increasingly becoming an indispensable leisure time activity? At the highest level of analysis, a video game has two identities. First, it is a piece of software that is infinitely scalable with no marginal cost, and its potential and capabilities grow right along with hardware and networking advancements. In other words, We can all play. Second, it is an immersive media experience that truly engages the player in a compelling narrative or story. Engagement is without question the key to attract and retain attention and deeply inspire personal and emotional reactions. By Oppenheimer's estimates, the global video game player base is over 2.5 billion strong and growing. Joining me today is Martin Yang, a senior analyst for emerging technologies and services. And from what I've been told, an active gamer that spends hundreds of hours researching by playing games. We will attempt to deeply understand the world of video gaming and its future potential. I myself, while not a gamer, regularly attends San Diego's Comic-Con, and I have witnessed the dedication and loyal following of gamers, as well as their near-religious devotion at the gaming lounges where new games are tested and launched. Welcome, Martin. Thanks, Joel. We have so much to cover. Let's get started. So, Martin, give us a bit of history of gaming, size the market, and let's talk about gamers by platform.
0: You know, video games is almost as old as the first computer, and we have video games as far back as in the 60s. And it really came to the public market in a more mainstream way uh, when the first Atari console was in the market in the 70s. And uh, you know, Pong was one of the most uh, th- sought after holiday gift for the kids. And then coming into the 80s, uh, we have a revival of console games brought by the first Nintendo, and then later in the 90s, uh, where we see a wider variety of different consoles. Uh, When Sony introduced the first PlayStation in the mid-90s, and in the 2000s, we have Xbox, uh, the newer generation of consoles, all came together where contributed to a dramatic increase in the market growth. Uh, In the past 10 years, the biggest theme or the growth driver for the game market is really mobile platforms where we saw, uh, you know, in the past 10 years, the overall gaming market growing eightfold from 20 billion in 2010 to almost 160 billion in 2020. Um, So right now, mobile gaming is roughly half of the market of that 160 billion, and then console and PC shares the rest equally.
1: Interesting. So games go all the way back to the 70s. That's remarkable. With social engagement such a part of how we live and play, it makes sense that games move to another platform, another way to play. So let's talk a little bit about the nature of games and the genre stories. Talk about narrative. Talk about the stories themselves.
0: If we trace to the original games, the original games are really simple. Taking Paul, for example, it's really a, a dot that moves across different screens, and then you're trying very hard uh, to ensure that you, you have, you're using two pedals to keep the ball bouncing uh, off one another. And then over time, when computing devices uh, has more sophistication and storage, that allows game designers to craft uh, more uh, sophisticated stories. and then uh, you know, earlier uh, RPG games on PC are essentially tabletop dragons and dungeons games uh, transferred to a computing platform, and so that dominates. That storytelling on PC dominated the gaming market for a long while, and now uh, because the uh, rapid adoption of mobile devices, and now we're seeing the return of more simple games where people can pick up their phone, play for a few seconds, and back their phone, more games that the market calls hyper-casual games that are similar in format to the original Pong game. So the market really had returned a full circle there, Uh, but at the same time, we do see high-end games continue the trajectory of crafting uh, increasingly sophisticated and, well, refined.
1: So that's interesting. So games went from simple to more complex, different kinds of platforms. And of course, the rise of mobile phones made that possible. So that brings us to a key trend that you and I were talking about, which is user-generated content. Can you explain this trend and tell us what the future may look like?
0: Before we talk about user-generated trend, we have to talk about what kind of experience the conventional video games provide to players. You know, when we think about a typical video game, a RPG game, or a role-playing game, for instance, It's a well-crafted story that led the player through the experience of the in-game character. For instance, it could be a knight on a quest to slay the dragon. So the player doesn't really have the freedom to craft his or her own story. So in those scenarios, they are following the lead and the designs by the game developer to go over a story of some other person. And when we have a more sophisticated hardware, and now we can enable more user-generated content, in the sense that a player can craft its own story, determining what's in a game and how the physics in the game operates. And those are games, popular games like Minecraft, uh, Fortnite, or even Roblox. And those games, because they have a wider variety of potential for games to craft their own experience, that kickstarts a virtual cycle where more players join the game, craft their own experience and the diversity of the experience attract more players into those games. So that becomes uh, not only a, a very diversified gaming platform but also becomes a social hub for players of similar interests.
1: The games become immersive and social. Everyone gets to play in the way that they would like. So we talked about the market we've talked about the actual stories and the games themselves. Let's pivot and talk about how gamers play from their perspective, how they make their choices about their consoles or a desktop to a cross-platform play. And you just mentioned a little bit about social play. Talk about it from their
0: perspective. I think we are in an era of unforeseen prosperity The kind of devices we have and the kind of devices that are capable of playing games so for any average gamer uh, we have the options of playing on the phone or or smart tvs on the consoles pcs and you know a variety of the different digital devices what becomes more important is really connecting different players across different devices and that's why uh, cross-platform play becomes one of the overarching theme in more recent years uh, because for some they will be able to join their friends on the console and pc and stay together and play together um, that kind of ties into the other theme where video games are becoming social hops and the social hangouts where the objective of playing game is not only winning but also socializing with your friends and in that way a person on the phone on the go can still stay in the same virtual social space with their friends at home who are on or PCs. So that becomes a very uh, new trend uh, for a lot of players and that actually became a driver for the expansion of the market because now there are more ways to stay together in games.
1: Speaking of the expansion of the market, I know there's a debate about this in the industry and perhaps one of the most overused phrases today is to create a, quote, Netflix-like service. Can you walk us through the debate and what exactly subscription means and what does moving to the cloud look like?
0: I think there are two layers to the debate. The first layer is there a way to support a all-you-can-play platform for video games, in a sense, like a Netflix, you pay $10 a month, you can consume all the movie and tv content you want and a similar platform for video games will be you spend 10 to 15 a month and then you can play all the games for as long as you can and uh, we have emergent services like xbox game pass uh, that enable similar experiences Uh, the key question is right now xbox game pass may not be uh, financially viable uh, if xbox doesn't have the other part of the business to support Xbox Game Pass, because it does require a lot of upfront investment to uh, have a very substantial library of games, unique content to attract subscribers to the platform. Um, So, uh, you know, anyone other than uh, the biggest players like Xbox and Sony are probably not, doesn't have the financial incentive to make a Netflix-like subscription service for games, and the end goal is really to have a very large subscriber base so that their monthly fees can support ongoing investments in new gaming content. And another layer to the con- to the argument is the delivery of the content. You know, uh, when you think about Netflix, again, uh, you open a browser on PC or mobile. When you open the app, uh, the content flows directly to you. And those are cloud-streamed directly to our devices without the need to download any of the content beforehand. And for video games, a similar analogy will be cloud streaming of games. In those scenarios, uh, our very high-end computing device is no longer required to play the games. All you need is really good internet connection and a good display. Um, so that is a very you know, long-term goal for most of the players. Even though we have emerging cloud streaming services, Those are limited to very specific regions with good uh, data center support and internet connection. I do see that as the ultimate enabler of the market expansion for video games, because then you're removing the final barriers to high quality video game content. You're no longer required to own very expensive hardware to access Uh, high-end gaming experience.
1: So that really leads into a discussion about friction points. From a gamer's point of view, you just talked about how in a future state, a gamer might subscribe to a pass or service and then have the games automatically available. They wouldn't have to download them, which takes time, and they wouldn't have to worry about installing patches. So Talk to us about the friction points that are currently in play and how future services might address them.
0: Indeed. So I think there are two major points of friction for games right now. Number one is the requirement for high-end hardware and those, you know, very compute-heavy games with excellent graphic quality usually demands... The latest generation of uh, gpus and cpus which we know is very very hard to get very expensive to get right now and the other point of friction uh, is storage uh, where games as they increase in sophistication uh, they demand a much larger storage space i remember the first generation playstation or xbox only have a storage capacity of 20 gigabytes and now uh, that storage um, the specification has increased to a thousand gigabytes or one terabyte. But you know, ten years ago, twenty gigabytes may host ten, if not twenty, games. And today, when we think about you know the latest generation Call of Duty, each game would demand you know two hundred gigabytes. So even though you have a much bigger storage, uh, they may host fewer games because those newer games are so large. And those two friction points uh, can be solved completely by cloud gaming because the content are direct delivered from the cloud to our device. So all you need is really very small storage placed locally uh, for catch. You no longer have, are required to have the latest GPUs or the largest hard disk to host those content. And so that that means you're allowed to move around in between different places, as long as you have the good connection for internet as long as you have a display place, you can access uh, the games.
1: So we talked earlier about the estimate of the gaming addressable market. The global video game player base is over two point five billion strong and growing. So let's talk about future growth, and that means casual players and non-gamers. How do you bring those cohorts into this addressable market?
0: I think there are uh, multiple ways we can. Expand the addressable market. You know, the bulk of that 2.5 billion uh, players or active players are on mobile devices. Because when we break down to 2.5 billion, we probably have maybe close to 500 to 700 uh, players who are more of a console or PC player, and the rest are playing the games on mobile devices. And when we think about a typical mobile player, I think the demographic tends to skew more female and uh, they could be a lot younger than a conventional pc or console player with which you know a typical profile will be an average 35 uh, year old male um so those mobile players as they get into games from mobile devices they themselves are going through the transformation of mobile games as we speak uh, because mobile games before were well, very simple. Going back to the analogy of the original pong game, very simple and uh, unsophisticated in graphics and gameplay. And they are becoming more sophisticated, and uh, we're providing the same gameplay experience similar to those offered by console and PCs. So those mobile players, you can see mobile devices as the induction of th- ceremony for those players, where they they get to experience. Uh, increasingly complex content where they they might be drawn to uh, the high-end gaming experience that are only available to consoles and PCs now.
1: So ironically, I find this very interesting from a marketing point of view. Gaming has two aspects that music and movies don't have. The first one is in-game spending, which is all about product placement and brands. And second... An open developer platform which encourages collaboration. Can you talk about how these two areas also help the growth case for this market?
0: Yeah, comparing to you know more linear media format like music and TV or movies, you know the interactive nature of games really allows the publishers and developers to monetize the game more substantially. Um, you know, you mentioned in-game spending, where you know. In a Netflix model, I pay $10 a month and consume all the content I want, and the platform doesn't get more income beyond that monthly subscription fees. But if I were an Xbox Game Pass, um, I I got $10 a month subscription from users, and I get additional money as the players uh, spend on additional items inside of the games, like a costume or cosmetic items in Fortnite or specialized gun in Call of Duty, so those are additional upside uh, only games can provide when you think about the economics uh, for games.
1: And talk about the open platform for developers.
0: Sure, I think the you know it goes back to our discussion on user-generated content. You know, many more games are essentially like sandboxes where you can build on what you are already offered and create your craft your own experience and make money from those. Uh, individual experiences. good example would be individual players who are maybe uh, a teenager, a younger, who creates really good um, games on top of Roblox and then can make money, actually make very substantial money in the millions of dollars for themselves as individual teenagers or creators. And this openness and the sandbox nature of games is also very rare outside the gaming industry.
1: Well, let's talk about that just for a bit because that really gets us into the area of psychology. We talked about the story, the narrative, and how you play. Let's talk about why you play and the underlying psychology of games. Games are constructed to build engagement, to build competition, to build emotional connection, that leads to more games and maybe even an in-game purchase. So talk a little bit about that, the psychology of games.
0: Definitely the psychology aspect of games is a dual-edged sword. On the one hand, the reason uh, so many investors are much more interested in video game industry is because this is the most engaging and immersive media content. Once you're playing a game, your mind goes into flow, you're completely focused. In the same way a psychologist understands your behavior, the things you do gives a lot of information about yourself and allowing the developer or the publisher of the game understand how you behave and how you react to different cues uh, in the games. Uh, The downside for that information or immersive interaction is that there might be psychological tricks that publishers can place in games that, you know, nudge you to uh, behave in the ways they want. In more extreme cases, they may let you to a path of spending way more money in game than you would like.
1: So, as always, there has to be guardrails and controls. But you and I talked about the fact that gaming is fun, it can be applied to other areas of our lives and make those areas fun like learning, like exercising. At the very essence, your brain is seeing an obstacle. You're trying to learn. You're trying to get better. That's the nature of how the game works. And so that has applications in other industries, which is really interesting and exciting. It does because it can pull that experience forward. So talk about adjacent industries, and how you see the future?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think we can, you know, again, going back to the interactive and immersive nature of video game content, one example would be education, where, you know, our minds will be the most effective uh, when they're in the flow mode. So uh, when you bring game designs, for instance, to the classroom in a more education-like environment, or in a more school-like environment, then we can allow the students to focus on very specific tasks, and uh, you know, kicking a very strong feedback loop for them to you know spend very high quality hours with focused attention on subject, and to you know keep learning and keep essentially leveling up on their knowledge or expertise in a particular subject. So that requires a video game like design, uh, a more interactive design in the classroom. Another example involves VR and how, you know, VR as we know is uh the most immersive experience you could get with a video game. Um so that has applications in healthcare where uh VR has been used for pain management for burn victims for instance. You know, when they're put on a VR headset, it gives them, you know, very strong visual and audio cues um as if the patients are in a tropical island. So in those cases the immersive interactive experience may allow them to forget about their physical pain or uh, reduce their physical pain uh, very effectively.
1: We are in the early stages of reimagining gaming techniques into our lives. So many applications for the future. I have really enjoyed this conversation with you. So let me end our conversation with any final words that you may have for our audience.
0: Video game is one of the most exciting areas and we do see tremendous growth opportunities in video games as game-like content expand uh, beyond the gaming industry to education, to e-commerce, to healthcare, and many more. I think this is one of the most exciting areas where we see new innovation and the new business models happening on a daily or if not hourly basis
1: don't miss the next episode of let's talk future as we explore a variety of topics important to every kind of investor by bringing our firm's financial thought leaders directly to you hit the subscribe button today